Welcome, everybody, to the Steve Jordan Experience. A pleasure to have you here with me today. If this is your first time listening, thank you for joining me. And my guest today, Dr. William Davis, who is a best-selling author, a, uh, a healthcare provider, a doctor, someone who is leading the charge in helping people fix their guts, their microbiome. A conversation today that we've had on the conver- had on the podcast before, and is becoming more and more public. With Dr. Davis's knowledge and information and his best-selling book, Super Gut, it's a uh, it's a really huge area in our health and area that is becoming more uh, more studied, more understood. And Dr. Davis is at the forefront of understanding this and giving that education and the extra and and an ability to change that as well. So it's never too late to think about you know, changing your health, it's an area where we can immediately take charge and take power back into our own hands because our health system, our healthcare system is broken today. We're treating symptoms and we're not treating causes. We need to know the root of the causes. And oftentimes in my professional and personal experience, it can be related to food. And we're now knowing as Dr. Davis will share with us, it's in our microbiome and in our guts. So without further ado, welcome welcome, Dr. Davis to the show, and it is a pleasure to have you here with us. Well, thank you, Steve. Thanks for the invitation. I'm so glad you pointed out the healthcare system is broken. It is. Absolutely. You know, we, we've, we've talked about it a little bit before, and it, it's, it is amazing to have doctors like yourself. I mean, you are a you know board certified doctor. You were a cardiologist. I mean, you were innovating tech, you were innovating techniques that you were sharing offline just before. And if you could share some of those and and sort of your growth into where you are today to help our audience understand, you know, that you you evolved and it's and it's okay to evolve and seeing that transformation in your profession i think will lead to a lot more respect in what you're now doing and in the in our conversation about the microbiome and gut you know steve as we talked about just before we started recording was I, you know i grew up a very poor kid in new jersey one bedroom house single mom two sisters uh, lived on welfare and so i put myself through 17 years of college and training and graduated with a lot of debt so when I finished, I was pretty proud of myself. <laughs> and yeah, that's so amazing. I, that's an incredible like task, an amazing feat and accomplishment. Well, so I went into what's called interventional cardiology, and that's where you intervene. You put in stents, balloons, cutting devices, all these things. You abort heart attacks, you open arteries. And uh, I, I was pretty good at it. And it was kind of a Wild West period where a lot of the technologies were evolving. But then my mom died of sudden cardiac death living in New Jersey. She had two stents put, I'm sorry, she had two vessel angioplasty and about four months later had sudden cardiac death. Mm. Well, Steve, it was such a vivid illustration because my mom died of the disease I dealt with every day or thought I dealt with, but it was an illustration of just how inadequate dealing with a disease in a cath lab was because like my mom, you, you can die before you ever make it to the hospital. You can die in the ambulance. You can die you know, waiting for the ambulance to arrive. So waiting for catastrophe to strike is a very unsatisfactory way of dealing with heart disease, identifying heart disease. So I I asked back then, this is 26 years ago. I asked, is there a better way to identify people at risk for coronary? And look, by the way, we have to put aside this ridiculous notion of cholesterol testing, a complete utter waste of time. It should have been thrown away decades ago, but it's made so much money 
that it's still the top of the consciousness. The real tragedy of cholesterol testing, Steve, is that it took my colleagues' attention off the things that really do cause heart disease. And they think that taking a statin drug and cutting saturated fat reduces, that's all you can do, which is complete nonsense. <laughs> so, I, I, I am so happy to hear this and you share that. I've, been, I've heard that those numbers, you know, the, the magic number, if your, your cholesterol is, you know, total cholesterol is over 200, that that's bad. I heard that was a made up number somewhere that came from some other study that was being done. And they found, they kind of landed upon that and it just stuck. It was just this, I mean, can you, can you comment on that? Is there yeah. Anything? So, you know, it was clear. So, you know, the average LDL cholesterol of a person who is just an everyday person, uh, no heart disease is about 133, 134 milligrams per deciliter. Average LDL for a person who dies of a heart attack, 133 milligrams. It is, <laughs> has so little distinguishing power to tell you who's going to have a heart disease, who's not going to. And in fact, if you ever look at your cholesterol panel, you'll see LDL cholesterol in parentheses calculated. It's mm -hmm. not even measured. It's calculated by an old equation generated around 1960 called the Friedewald calculation. It came from the NIH. This was a time when the biochemists were spinning down blood to break it down to its various fractions by density. And it was 1960, a long time ago. Yeah. It was real hard to actually count the particles in the bloodstream, the fat-carrying proteins, lipoproteins. It's real tough back then to actually quantify and characterize those particles. They're, they're teensy-weensy particles, can't even see them with a microscope. And so they devised a very indirect method of indirectly quantifying those particles. They said, let's measure one of the components. Well, they, there's a whole bunch of things you can choose from because all these particles share characteristics. They could have chosen, say, a protein like epiprotein B. They could have chosen something else like triglyceride. They chose cholesterol to be an indirect index of these particles. Fast forward many decades, people hear cholesterol must cause heart disease. It's not the cause. It's a marker for the particles that cause heart disease. And the crazy thing is that we can measure those particles I've been doing it for 20 some years mm -hmm. and you can see the particles that cause heart disease. When you see that, you recognize right away people with coronary disease, with had three stents, a heart attack, sudden cardiac death, bypass surgery, whatever, they all have a pattern of an ex excess of small LDL particles. Not LDL cholesterol as an indirect measure, but the actual particles themselves. Well, the science was clear. What, 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 what causes small LDL? Well, grains and sugars, period. Not fat, not saturated fat. <laughs> so this came out of uh, University of California, Berkeley, Hopkins, some other place. Not my science, other people's science. And so well, I, uh, after my mom died and I wanted to bring some means of identifying early heart disease risk and rejecting this notion that cholesterol does that for you because it doesn't, we, got a, uh, we started doing heart scanning, CT heart scanning to generate coronary calcium scores because calcium comprises 20% of all uh, atherosclerotic plaque. So it's a, it's a gauge, the dipstick for the amount of plaque you have in your arteries. Well, we're doing this in Wisconsin and left, even though I, I'm from New Jersey, I was living in Wisconsin, we're scanning people left and right. Steve, when you do this, you see heart diseases everywhere. Hmm. It's in the 52 year old businessman who, who jogs, rides his bike, but his dad had a heart attack at 58. He wants to know at 52, he gets scanned. Oh yeah, he's got it maybe a score of 500, something like that. Normal is zero. Mm -hmm. and, and we also found out, helped publish these data, if you do nothing and your heart scan score is 500 and you're feeling fine, 
you swim, bike, ride, whatever. Your score is 500. A year later, if you do nothing, it's 25% higher. So what's mm-hmm. that, about 625, something like that? Mm-hmm. Another year, another 25. And you're closer and closer to death, heart attack, developing symptoms that get you a procedure. Well, if you take uh, what my colleagues to this day call optimal medical therapy, optimal medical therapy, which is a low-fat, low-saturated-fat diet, baby aspirin, a high dose of a statin cholesterol drug, and exercise, and maybe some other things like a beta blocker. Optimal medical therapy. How fast does the score go up? 25% per year. It has no impact no on that measure at all. <laughs> so I've got thousands of people freaking out at me, right? What do I do? My score would, fu- of course, my colleagues say, oh, Steve, let's do the real test, heart catheter. See if you need a preventive stent or bypass, which is malpractice, but it's done all the time mm. because it pays so well. Sadly, sad to say that, but that's how my field works. So I think that's wrong. So I wanted to find a way to put a stop to that 25% per year progressive and then the increasing danger of that increase. Well, it took some years, some zigzagging uh, and, and logic and thinking, but it led to some very important lessons. When I added vitamin D, for instance, now it's, it's a little worse where I am. It's in Wisconsin where you know we have, it's, it's winter six months a year practically. Uh, and even in summer, you can't always get enough vitamin D. Yeah. Wearing clothes, working indoors, we lose the capacity to activate vitamin D as we get older, especially after age 40. And so I added vitamin D. It was the first time, Steve, it was the first time I saw scores do that, drop mm. dramatically. The first time, I didn't believe it, first few times. 850 is now 410? What? No mm. way. Go look at this. Yeah. The calcium what had was it in the vitamin D that was able to do that? What, what caused it? What was the, the uh, inception of that, the catalyst? It's probably a number of things. Vitamin D is crucial in the vitamin D and um, in calcium metabolism. Mm. So we're measuring calcium. So that was one thing. It's also anti-inflammatory. It has very potent anti-inflammatory effects. Mm. It also reduces uh, insulin resistance. These are the real causes, by the way, Steve, of, of coronary of heart disease, not mm-hmm. high cholesterol. Right. Inflammation. Yeah. Inflammation, insulin resistance, uh, what's called metabolic endotoxemia from bowel flora. Uh, lack of vitamin D, lack of omega-3 fatty acids. There, there are concrete causes that are easy to address, but they don't make money mm-hmm. for the pharmaceutical or medical device industry. So you hear almost no conversation about this, even though the science has <laughs> borne this stuff out. Um, so adding vitamin D, big effect. Uh, getting rid of small LDL particles. So we, you, you do something called advanced lipoprotein analysis, I used a method called NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, which has become kind of the gold standard now for people who do bother to check these things. And some would start with maybe 2,000 nanomoles per liter particle count per volume. They'd go wheat grain sugar-free and small LDL would drop to zero or some other low number. In other words, it wasn't like a 20% improvement or 30% improvement. It was obliteration of that Mm. cause of heart disease. But that's when people also told me, well, I went wheat, grain, and sugar-free, and you didn't tell me my rheumatoid arthritis would get much better, or that my migraine headaches would get 90% better, mm-hmm. or that I would lose 73 pounds, or that I would have to get off three blood pressure medicines because my blood pressure is now normal, 
or I'd have to stop the insulin. And my hemoglobin A1C dropped from a terrible 12% down to like, you know, 5.8% or something like that. In other words, I did it for small LDL particles and control over coronary risk and coronary calcium scores. And I stumbled on this incredible experience where people are telling me so many of their health conditions receded. Mm, amazing. I, and I, I can share something, um, you know, and this is what stimulated me to reach out to you. Your, your book, Super Gut, was profound and, and, I, and I enjoyed it very much. What I, when I moved out to California and I shared with you, I'm from New Jersey as well. I moved out to California about 20 years ago and I uh, stumbled upon a book called E-Write for Your Blood Type. And it's, you know, it was a book and talked about that. And mainly in that book, what I learned was dairy, gluten, um, can cause inflammation. Those were like two really big common things that I grew up having a lot of from New Jersey, Italian family, a lot of dairy. I used to drink a gallon of milk every like two, three days. My mom would buy a gallon of milk from the quick check. Remember quick checks? And, uh, you know, she'd be like, I just bought a gallon of milk. And I, you know, I'd be chugging it at the, at the, at the refrigerator and we had pasta and bread all the time, whatnot. And I was fit. Right. And I didn't have any big issues. I had asthma. And I grew up with asthma. I come out to California. I do this. I go. I don't just try something, Dr. Davis. When I do something, I do it. I all in, right? You know, like I'm, I'm experimenting. No dairy, no, no gluten. I go. And, and so I do this. And for a year, um, I had dramatic changes. I had no more asthma. And I kind of attributed to the environment, you know, living more in the desert. But it was not that. I came home, saw my family about a year later. My mom's like, oh, my God, you're so skinny. And I was like, what are you talking about? It was inflammation, systemic inflammation that I have running through my body where I was inflamed. I had, I was puffy because of that. And after a year of, you know, not having any dairy or gluten, I was really, I was well, I like, you know, from the inside out, I am now, like, as I share with you, I'm 47 years old. I live pain-free. I have optimal health, wellness. I have not been on an antibiotic in 18 years. My scores, when the doctor reads it, like, he's like, wow, I'm impressed. Like they're always like hot notch. And people are like, what do you work out every day? You know, four hours a day. I'm like, no, if I work out, you know, four times a week, I'm happy. And then workout is not really that intense. It's, you know, I'm walking, I'm hanging out, whatever. But the point is you are on point and I'm, I'm, I'm like the whole gluten and dairy and, you know, sugar is, is, is bad. So I wanted to share that little anecdote about myself as well, because I think it's pertinent in your story and share there um, how dramatic of a change it can make. Yeah, that's great, Steve. Yeah. So now let's go to, uh, let's segue, because it sounds like this is a great bridge to get to, you know, super gut and, and your kind of findings into where you're now looking at the microbiome and the discovery of, I mean, billions of, of, of cells in, this, in, in the gut where you are finding now health is not, you know, is, is can and is located in your, in your gut. Can you talk a little bit about that and that kind of segue that bridge into what you're up to now? Well, as powerful as the concepts I introduced through the Wheat Belly books and then my undoctored books were, and people had transformation in their health, not everybody went 100% all the way back to perfect health. Some people would say things like, well, I lost 73 pounds, but I've got 40 more to go, but I'm stuck, I'm stalled. Or my, I was a type 2 diabetic for 10 years. I'm off insulin. I'm off the oral drugs. My hemoglobin A1C, the long-term measure of blood sugar, was a terrible 12.3%. Now it's 5.9%. So it's much better, but it's not yet perfect, which is 5.0%. And you're still exposed to some of the risks uh, of diabetes. Uh, or maybe you had an autoimmune disease. You're off the biologic, saving $4,000 a month. 
and maybe off the prednisone, but you're still having occasional flares, say of joint pain, rheumatoid arthritis or something like that. So it became, so I wanted to know why. Oh, another one was people who would say, I had intolerance to all sorts of foods before, mm. like nuts, uh, nightshades, like eggplant, tomatoes, or FODMAPs, fibers and sugars, or fruit, or legumes, uh, and I still have them. So I asked, what, what could be persistently wrong? And so I looked to the microbiome for answers, and Steve, is, that's where the answers came from. Mm -hmm. two, two things in, in particular. One is, as a society, with our overexposure to antibiotics, you know, most people by age 40 have taken 30 courses of antibiotics, uh, herbicide, pesticide residues in food, food additives like emulsifying agents, synthetic sweeteners, other drugs, stomach acid blocking drugs, anti-inflammatory drugs. We have done a real number on our microbiome, but one of the changes is we've lost very important species. Restoring, identifying them, restoring those species can be extremely powerful. The other problem is more complicated, and that is as we lost those healthy microbes, unhealthy, mostly stool microbes like E. coli, salmonella, uh, pseudomonas, klebsiella have proliferated, and then they did something weird. They ascended up into the small bowel. So that's called, uh, and this is getting some traction, by the way, it's called SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. The key with that is one to recognize that it is exceptionally common, which surprised me. I did not expect that. In fact, I used to tell people that SIBO is an uncommon thing. No, 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 it's everywhere. Hmm. And I, I didn't appreciate it until I got my hands on this thing here. It's called the air device. I have no relationship with the company. The founder is my friend now, Dr. Angus Short, but um, he invented this thing for his fiance then, now wife, because she had irritable bowel syndrome and was told to go on a low FODMAPs diet, low fiber and sugar. But he saw how tough it was and how when she slipped up, she'd have bloating and diarrhea. So he invented this device to measure hydrogen gas that you emit if you slip up, at least hmm. in that situation. Well, I, I got it, got a hold of it, and I called him up. I said, Angus, do you know what this is? He says, no. <laughs> I thought it was for you know IBS and FODMAP. I said, no, 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 no. This is the device to identify how your food intolerances are caused and tells you how to map out bacteria in your GI tract. So they're changing a lot of their information and how to put this thing to use. So this is a game changer. You know, people don't have to buy it. It's called Air, A-I-R-E. The company is called Food Marble. But it helped a lot of people. I have thousands of people who have this now. And you're, you can track where bacteria are in your GI tract. You don't have to have it, but it can be a, one of those things that's really helpful. So how do you apply it? What is, like, what, what is the application of it? So it's uh, now this is the old device. The new device is in my kitchen. It's black and it measures hydrogen gas and methane. So these are gases produced by microbes, not by humans. So it's all about timing. When you ingest something that bacteria eat. So in, in the normal situation, you should eat something that bacteria want, but it should take a minimum of 90 minutes to get through the 24 feet of small bowel to the colon where the microbes are supposed to be. So if you test positive in the first 90 minutes, it means bacteria up high. That's this is this is being debated. There's some new information, very new, that it may be a lot of the people have been telling that you know if you turn test positive at three hours, it's normal colonic uh, activity fermentation. Mm -hmm. That may not be true. So a lot of this is is, is evolving. 
but you where, can where, where do you put it do you do you put it in your mouth do you how do you oh yeah it? yeah uh, you blow, blow into you. it it's almost like a like um a breathalyzer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it talks to your smartphone and it tells you how much hydrogen gas and methane you're producing mm-hmm. um but I, I bring it up because when i saw this device i talked about it and thousands of people started doing it steve it was shocking that it was the exceptional person who tested negative. Now, you, we, could, we could say maybe the test is invalid, but we would take steps to deal with this, this SIBO, 30 feet of microbes, trillions of them turning over rapidly and producing hydrogen gas. We take some steps to eradicate it, and they would test negative. They'd go from maybe a 10, it's a zero to 10 scale, 10, maybe down to 1.2. And they would say, and I finally broke my weight loss plateau. My psoriasis finally went away completely. My migraine headaches are down to zero. Uh, My hemoglobin A1C finally dropped to 4.7%. In other words, we saw all those residual health problems finally give way and people achieved essentially magnificent health. Mm. Now, people don't have to get that device. There are other ways to identify if you've allowed these microbes to overtake your entire GI tract. You look for telltale signs, for instance, like uh, fat malabsorption. If you see fat droplets in the toilet, that's a sign that you've got bacteria up in the duodenum blocking Mm -hmm. the action of bile and pancreatic enzymes. The persistence of food intolerances. So all those food intolerances, and you, you've heard this, there are people say, I can only eat five foods, you know, like fish, white chicken meat, and green spinach. And that's mm-hmm. it. <laughs> Which is bad, right? Because it doesn't produce the, the good bacteria in your stomach. We need to have more diversity. Or people say things like, I can't eat tomatoes, gives me gas and bloating and mm-hmm. joint pains. The problem is not the food. The problem is your microbiome. Mm-hmm. And if all you do is avoid that food, you still have a massively disrupted microbiome and it's going to get you down the road, weight gain, type two diabetes, autoimmune diseases, neurodegenerative disorders Mm -hmm. like Parkinsonism, uh, Alzheimer's dementia. In other words, it'd be foolhardy if you have food intolerance, say, and you ignore it or all you do is avoid the food. That's not a solution. That's Mm -hmm. avoiding the solution. uh, there are conditions that are synonymous with SIBO, like restless leg syndrome, virtually synonymous. If you've got that, you've got SIBO. Wow. Uh, fibromyalgia, virtually mm-hmm. synonymous. If you have an autoimmune disease, neurodegenerative disorder, or any kind of intestinal inflama- inflammatory condition, IBS, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, very high likelihood you have SIBO. And so, uh, and if you're obese, if you have fatty liver, you know, Steve, just the number of people in the US with fatty liver with SIBO is about 65 million. So we're not talking about this uncommon occasion. No, we're talking about mainstream people having this thing because of all the things. You know, a good parallel is, you know, we've we've in, uh, provoked all sorts of changes in the climate. We've acidified the oceans. We've shrunk the coral reefs. Polar ice caps are melting. Hurricanes, floods, wildfires. Uh, well, that same magnitude of change in the external ecosystem is also occurring in the internal ecosystem. But of course, there's no fires and, 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 uh, and coral reefs. It's a change in the, in the microbial composition. That's all the bad news. The good news is you can do a, a lot of things about this. And let's talk about like how, like where in, in science are we 
And, and why is healthcare missing this? Like, like, why are we like, I mean, you're obviously very educated. You're, you know, you have a, a New York Times bestselling book, Wheat Belly, and you've got this national bestselling book, Gut, uh, Super Gut. Why are we now like just learning about this? Why are we not doing this on a more, on a bigger level? What is the problem? What's the disconnect? Why, why can't we, why can't we all come together and collaborate on this? The science is relatively recent. So consumer devices like this are changing mm-hmm. things. The science in uh, identifying microbes has really advanced in the last uh, decade or a little more than a decade. Mm-hmm. It used to be all you could do to identify microbes was take whatever body fluid, say maybe stomach juice or poop or whatever, and you put it in a Petri dish or similar and see what would grow. Well, 90% of the microbes that occupy the GI tract won't grow in those circumstances. They're so-called anaerobes. They die upon exposure to oxygen or air. Mm. And so DNA uh, methods have really uncovered an entire universe of microbes and has opened. It's like, it's like all of a sudden recognizing there's a, there's a Milky Way out there filled yeah. with <laughs> trillions of stars. Great Same analogy. thing here. No one knew just how how complex that world was and the critical role. My favorite microbe in the world is Lactobacillus reuteri, R-E-U-T-E-R-I, named after the German microbiologist who discovered it in 1962, Dr. Gerhard Reuter. And this microbe has been lost by almost all of us. Mm -hmm. So uh, less than one in 20 people retain this microbe, even though indigenous populations all have it. And so do animals, your dogs, squirrels, chipmunks, chickens, they all have it, but we've lost it. Likely because it's very susceptible to common antibiotics like ampicillin. Mm -hmm. So if you took ampicillin for a sinus infection or upper respiratory infection, you probably killed off your rotary. Restore it and magnificent things happen. One of the things it does is it colonizes the upper GI tract, by the way, Mm. sends a signal to your brain via the vagus nerve to release oxytocin, the hormone oxytocin. Oxytocin, you may recognize as the hormone of love and empathy. So people do this. They replace rotary and they say, uh, I, I like my spouse better. I like my family better. I get along better with my coworkers. I understand other people's points of view better. But there's you also physical of that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At a time of record social isolation, yeah. suicide and divorce, even pre-pandemic. It's so crazy. a big social impact of this, uh, this microbe. But there's also other physical effects. The ladies go absolutely berserk because there's an explosion in dermal collagen and you start to lose your skin wrinkles. Mm. There's also athletes love it because it brings back youthful muscle and strength. You, you can regain muscle at an incredible pace. It's, it's almost scary how fast muscle can grow on this stuff. It preserves bone density, very important for ladies. It's on a par as effective as prescription drugs for osteoporosis with none of the costs or side effects. It deepens sleep. I'm a chronic insomniac, watching TV and reading books at three o'clock in the morning. Now I sleep straight through nine hours, deep sleep. Uh, it suppresses appetite. So you're in complete control of your appetite. It increases libido and gives you increase the erotic content of your dreams like a teenager. <laughs> so, but Steve, so... I mean, this sounds like the fountain of youth here. How can we package this? Is it possible to package it? Or is there, and, and or what's the method to get this particular uh, microbiome back? It's an evolving conversation. I got started by buying a commercial because the studies that validate this all came out of MIT between 2013, 2017. And they used a commercial product. 
mm-hmm. called BioGaia Gastrus, G-A-S-T-R-U-S. The problem with that product is made for babies because it was found that babies who got this uh, microbe had less colic, less regurgitation of breast milk or formula. So it was only for babies. But this MIT group uncovered all these other effects. So I got a hold of this, these tablets, but they're such low counts because they're for, in, for infants. So I mm-hmm. fermented it as yogurt, but not yogurt in the conventional sense. Very different. It looks and tastes like yogurt, but it's not yogurt. We're actually just trying to increase bacterial counts. So we ferment for 36 hours. Rotori doubles. That's how microbes uh, reproduce. They don't have sex. They don't, there's no mom and dad mm-hmm. bacteria. <laughs> so uh, so Rotori doubles every three hours at 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So I let it double 12 times. We perform flow cytometry to count the microbes, and we get about 260 billion counts per half cup serving. So that's how we get these big effects, uh, get the microbe. Now, when we deal with microbes, you have to deal with strains, not just species. So my best uh, example is E. coli. So your listeners have E. coli, I've got E. coli, you've got E. coli, but what if you ate cow manure that was contaminated in the Central Valley, California, well, you can die of that E. coli. Mm-hmm. Same species, different strains. So strains sometimes can make a big difference. So at the start, I only use those strains, the gastrous strains. I've since gotten a hold of seven additional strains, made yogurt. And this is just anecdote, my personal experience. I've experienced all the effects with all those strains. So I'm, as time goes on, I'm less and less convinced you have to use that strain. We have a mouse a study uh, ready to go. We're going to compare five of the strains and baseline four-week oxytocin levels and see if there are differences, at least among the five strains we've chosen. We're also going to look at dosing effects. So there's still a lot of work to do, but right now people can just make the yogurt and get all these effects. Now, Steve, that's one microbe. Hmm. So there are many other microbes we can identify and then replace them. I was just reading um, uh, not too long ago about yogurt and the benefits that we should have yogurt every day. Now, is all yogurt the same? I know there's when you go to a yogurt section in the grocery store, there's probably two dozen different types of yogurts uh, from milk yogurt to sheep yogurt to cow to um, goat yogurt and all the different varieties with what's many of them look like they have a lot of sugar. What's your opinion on having, you know, the yogurt? And we just talked about sugar being the, having the opposite effect of what we're trying to create here. Yeah, so you're exactly right. Sugar, high fructose, corn syrup, uh, and other garbage ingredients. So one of the things to know about commercial yogurt making, so uh, rotorite doubles every three hours, other species, two hours, depends on the species. Uh, Commercial fermentation is a four-hour process because they're manufacturing. They don't have the luxury of letting it ferment for 36 hours too slow. They want to turn over fast. So they do it for four hours. So there's nothing in the yogurt in the store. There's uh-huh. very low counts and they're choosing kind of ho-hum species. So nobody I've ever run into said, I, I, I ate the yogurt at the store and it changed my life. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> Good to and, know. I'm glad I asked this question. One of the advantages of this, so I, I hear you with problems with dairy. No question, that's true. So when you ferment for a long time, what you do is there's maximal conversion of the lactose, the lactic acid. So people who are lactose intolerant typically can eat these yogurts because there's very little lactose remaining. The lactic acid drops the pH of the yogurt to the 3.5 to 4.0 range. It's quite mm. acidic, so it's a little tart. 
But that level of acidity denatures or breaks down the casein beta A1 protein that's immunogenic. And if people want, they can pour off the whey because it has an insulin type effect. So it takes the this problematic food called dairy and it, it doesn't eliminate, but it reduces some of the problematic components. But, you know, people who say, oh, I don't want dairy. You can use coconut milk. There's just a few extra steps you have to go through so it doesn't separate. I've also fermented, you know, another great fermentation vehicle is hummus. Hummus mm. is a very f- fermentation friendly. Uh, we ferment ciders and juices and vegetables. So if there's one thing your listeners take away from this, the, the, bis- the biggest thing you can do for your microbiome are fermented foods. Mm-hmm. That's becoming clearer and clearer. People think that probiotics are the answer. They're not. Mm-hmm. Certainly not the current crop of commercial probiotics because they're, they're crafted very haphazardly. There's no rhyme or reason to most. There are some that are very well done, but most commercial probiotics are just haphazard collections. Throw a little of this, throw a little of that, uh, rather than purposeful, um, uh, intentionally managed microbes. Mm-hmm. So uh, right I now, see, the most- yeah, you're, I see you're 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 of an Asian descent. Which um, which which descent are you? I'm going to guess Korean, maybe. My mom was Japanese. Japanese. So my wife is Japanese. Mm. Um, and so she was born and raised in Japan in Yamagata, um, which is North Japan and the countryside. And we have a lot of fermented food. We fermented cabbages she makes, fermented um, different types. I mean, it, everything the fermented and like you're talking about fermenting and I'm thinking about my wife now. It's really great. Pickled this and, you know, it, it's really and I think that that has helped my microbiome, my health over the past eight years, as I said, I haven't been on an antibiotic since we've been together um, in 18 years. It's been amazing. So I love the fact that you can really get into it. It becomes an art. And that's what she loves to, to cook. She's a, she's a, she's an artist as, as you are an artist, you know, uh, in the, in the kitchen and it becomes fun. You can learn a lot about it. So it's very cool. Yeah. The Asians and the Europeans have been mm. much better at this than we have. And for some odd reason, I think it may be convenience. Americans yeah. have largely given up a lot of their fermented foods. And we've, got, you know, our great grandmothers would slap us if they saw us not eating, you know, all these fermented mm-hmm. foods. And, and they're, as you know, they're, they're delicious too. Absolutely. Very delicious. Um, you have like a little bit of everything, you know, so you have like your main meal, but you have those little sides, you know, where you, you don't have to have a lot of it, but you pick at it and they're just, they become part of a um, sort of a, almost like a, a side dish where you have, um, you know, with the main course. Um, very cool. I, I, I'm, I'm into that, uh, the whole fermentation thing and doing it yourself. Do you do it yourself? Do you, uh, are you into it like at home or do you buy it? What, what's your story there? I do a little of both. I have several batches of various vegetables fermenting. And I, as you know, Steve, it's almost a no cost process. If yeah. you're going to ferment, say, um, uh, cucumbers to make pickles. Mm-hmm. Uh, real pickles, fermented pickles, not yeah. the brine pickles. Uh, the cost of the cucumbers. You need mm-hmm. some filtered water. You need some non-iodized salt. You can just use an old jar and some method of keeping everything below the water surface. Uh, some people just fill the jar all the way up uh, completely and cap it. You're going to have to vent it every so often because it produces gases. Uh, it should be almost no cost. But, yeah. but many people are finding more and more fermented products at the store now. Fermented sauerkraut, kimchi, kefirs, of course, yogurts. 
uh, even some fermented vegetables. But what I do is I tell people to, let, let's say you buy a commercial sauerkraut that's been fermented. Well, the same thing that happens in the yogurt factory happens with the sauerkraut. So what I do is if you buy a commercial product that says live cultures or fermented, leave it on your counter for several days mm. and let it ferment longer. You know, mm. sauerkraut takes typically three weeks to ferment. So if you leave it on your counter for, you know, two, three weeks, it, it's it's stronger. Yeah. I, I, if, if I ever buy a commercial kefir or yogurts, I let it sit out for several days. When you say sit out, like opened or covered, or covered, covered, mm -hmm. but um, uh, so sitting out on the counter at room, but not refrigerated, but not refrigerated because microbes mm -hmm. are very sensitive to temperature and cold temperature makes them become uh, dormant. Mm. And you'll see, you know, one thing I, I like making is uh, there's a species of fungus called Saccharomyces boulardii, mm -hmm. and it's been around for about a century, but it's a, it's a relative of the Saccharomyces cerevisiae that people use to make uh, wine and beer, mm -hmm. but boulardii is, uh, is um, evolved to adapt to the human body. Well, you can get this as a commercial product. It's called Flora Store. It's just like, a few dollars, like 15 bucks, something like that. Empty a capsule into any volume of apple cider or some other juices just provided as no preservatives. So no, no um, uh, potassium sorbate, that kind of stuff, just juice. Mm. Empty a capsule, cap it very lightly. You'll see it 24 hours, it's gonna bubble like a cauldron because there's so much CO2, carbon dioxide being produced. Mm -hmm. Let that go for 48 to 72 hours. Very little sugar is, is left. It's been fermented to other things and it's carbonated. Mm -hmm. If you have carbonated apple apple soda or carbonated, I, I just did some mango uh, passion fruit, mm -hmm. very nice fermentation. And because the Saccharomyces boulardii is kind of like a traffic cop in your GI tract, it keeps the unhealthy microbes at bay and it cultivates healthy microbes. So it's one of the things you can add to. I wouldn't say that's the only thing you want to do. It's kind of an add-on, but it's an easy inexpensive thing. When you ferment foods, as you know, you ferment the first batch with whatever microbes you have. You can even use the surface of the vegetable as a source, but we'll often seed it with some microbial source. But then you can make subsequent batches from a bit of the prior batch. So if you do cider, ferment for 48, 72 hours, make your next batch with a couple of tablespoons of that previous batch into a new fresh batch of cider. Uh -huh. And that's how you save money. That's awesome. I love that. And do you have a any of the books that you've 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 published? Do you have a cookbook and, and anything that you kind of go through some of this? I have the uh, well, the Super Gut book has forty recipes in it. Yeah, and the but, recipes. Um, but is there like a like? I mean, I, I can see almost it's almost an encouragement that you can like create a cookbook of like like the you know the Super Gut cookbook or the something there. I mean, that's like a good a, idea. That's yeah. a good idea, Steve. It hadn't yeah. occurred to me. I do yeah. have two cookbooks, the Wheat Belly 30-Minute Cookbook and the Wheat Belly Cookbook. Yep. But, but those are, they do have some fermented foods in them, mm -hmm. but uh, that wasn't really the primary intent. So there's not a whole lot of them. It's, they're mostly yeah. wheat, grain-free and low carb. Uh, Super Gut does have some. I have, for instance, uh, uh, a recipe for some fermented veggies. I have a tzatziki that you can use. You can choose the microbe to use to make it so that you can get specific benefits out of it. Uh, but that's actually a very good idea. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's just, 
you know what? I mean, it's like the knowledge that you have, just the, the experience that you're sharing in the cooking. I mean, the knowledge is awesome, but I think the application of the knowledge becomes even more profound. That's where the, the shifts can occur. Yeah, what most people uh, contend with, what they struggle with, is they're kind of freaked out by fermented mm. foods at first. Mm -hmm. They yeah. kind of look at it suspiciously. It's kind of soupy looking. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes it gets contaminated by fungi and it gets odd colors you have to skim off. But, it, you know, I have a lot of people in my audience fermenting raw meat mm -hmm. and it's delicious. Do you have uh, as, as a as a Jap, as part Japanese, do you uh, do you like natto? I do not. <laughs> if you do, Steve, I am impressed. I, I learned to. Uh, so that's a, a tradition that um, it's, it's a part of it's a fermenting of the beans, right? The beans are fermented, right? And it's a, a, a way that the Japanese have uh, acknowledged one of their superpowers of of optimizing their health is having this natto, this bean, and they stir it. There's, I think there's a certain amount of times that you mix it to create more of this viscous kind of gooey, gummy uh, kind of bean experience. And it is, it smells and it tastes weird. It's got a unique texture, but you, you can uh, you can get used to it after trying it. You're a tougher times. guy than me, Steve, because I can tell you, <laughs> my mom would drive to Fort Lee. Oh yeah, right? yeah. By the natto. No Nice. And say here, eat it. I it, because, as you know, it looks like snot. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but it is. It's filled with uh, Bacillus subtilis subspecies natto, and um, it's probably one of the reasons why uh, Japanese ladies who consume it have had less osteoporotic fractures. Mm. The, the K two content produced by Bacillus subtilis. So, but I'm very impressive. You can eat natto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll let my wife know too. That's great. Um, how did your mom eat it? She just eat it right out of the out of, out of the, the 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 way that she prepared or have? Yeah, just, she didn't yeah. ferment it herself. Yeah, but she would eat it with rice, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah my mom was rice. not a very healthy woman, so <laughs> True, despite that, having it with rice is uh, is an easier, more palatable way to have it. Um, so, can you share the uh, you know the the thirty day? Um, diet or not diet, but the plan to reprogram your microbiome in the, in the book, super gut. It seems overwhelming for a lot of people. So I laid it out just like having a backyard garden in springtime. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to, your, 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 your growing season is a little different in California than it is here, yeah. but here we can start thinking about having a garden by end of May. So, <laughs> so let's say we do that. You lay out your whatever 10 by 10 plot, you pick out the sticks and the stones and the weeds, you plant seeds. And then through the growing season, you water and fertilize your garden. And then after a couple of months, you've got zucchini and tomatoes and melons, whatever. Think of the microbiome the very same way. We're going to prepare the soil. That is, we remove the things. So that's the first week of the program. Getting used to this idea that we're going to use filtered water, not use tap water with chlorine and fluoride. Mm -hmm. We're going to start to buy whole foods and avocado, but not a food that has a long list of synthetic ingredients with emulsifying agents and other additives that affect your microbiome. We're going to pick and choose real foods, choose organic whenever possible to minimize your exposure, herbicides, pesticides. That's the first week, preparing the soil. Planting the seeds, best thing, like we mentioned, fermented foods, hands down, best thing you can possibly do for your microbiome, several times per day, as you're doing. Commercial probiotics are still evolving. They're getting better. And I do list some of the preferred products that I have no relationship with the company. It's just that I want people to choose products because they're they're not cheap. They're expensive. No. 
You yeah. can pay a lot of money for something that does nothing. And I think that's wrong. They're getting better. For instance, a lot of the companies have not incorporated what I call consortium or guild effects. So my, my microbiologist friend, Dr. Raul Cano in San Diego, he has a 40-year academic career in microbiology, and he helped formulate a product. I have no relationship, just my friend, a company called BiotaQuest, and the product is called Sugar Shift, because mm -hmm. Raul put together a group of microbes that collaborated, and they consume fructose, glucose, and sucrose in your GI tract, convert it to mannitol, and it reduces blood sugar. So they call it mm -hmm. Sugar Shift. And so it's the only product I'm aware of where they actually incorporate a guild effect where he proved that when you put these microbes together, they have much bigger collaborative effects. So a probiotic, a multi-species high potency probiotic can play a role, but you want to be careful about the products you choose. And then lastly, uh, water and fertilizer of your garden. Those are the things that microbes eat, which are largely fibers, so-called prebiotic fibers and related things, polysaccharides. These are root vegetables, legumes, jicama, convenient sources like inulin powder, etc. And you want to make these part of your habit. It sounds like a lot, but if you, as you point out, if you have them around and you're comfortable with them, they just become part of your habit. And it is definitely worth it. Yeah, it's everything is we do is a habit. And this is a great way for us to break a habit. I mean, the book is awesome. It's very informative. You have a great way of just explaining and giving yourself even your anecdotal, your anecdotes and creating the the knowledge for what you're able to achieve. You know, sometimes information is good, but there are oftentimes in books that I've read, there's no outcome. The outcome on this is outstanding. I mean, literally changing your health through food, through the way you eat and creating a new, a new microbiome in your gut is the way, I mean, it's, it's almost, it almost seems like too good to be true, but it is not. It, it's, 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 I mean, it's, un, it's uncanny how we are able to adapt, not just our health, but our well-being. You had said preventing, uh, preventing Alzheimer's and other de uh, brain degenerative diseases and having ourselves to be in an optimal state, mind, body. Uh, and that to me is more profound than anything else. I mean, you've been able to really create this through several of your books. I mean, The Wheat Belly is a New York Times bestselling book. Can you comment on that? Like what that had created for you? And then this be, seems to be the evolution of that. I mean, would you, would you be, would you be, uh, is that correct to say is an evolution of that book? Would it be, yeah, you know, would, would you recommend if you don't recommend somebody read that first and then read this? Would that be a, a, a good start or? You know, I, was, I was very mindful of that, Steve. So in the super gut book, I did put in a lot of the wheat belly principles to get started because mm -hmm. of what I saw, even just with the wheat belly experience with wheat grain and sugar elimination and adding a handful of nutrients that are lacking in modern life, not in the diet, mm -hmm. but in modern life, like vitamin D. We don't get outside mm -hmm. enough. We wear clothes, magnesium. We drink filtered water and water filtration removes all magnesium. So just those things that restore your insulin response and reduce yeah. inflammation. So just those basic things are very important. So I do re-articulate them in the super gut book. But if someone wants to know the real deep dive, like why is modern wheat such an incredibly destructive food? Well, it's because agribusiness changed it, completely changed the thing. It doesn't look the same, doesn't take, it's completely different genetically, it's completely different biochemically. And a lot of the toxicity was amplified because farmers and agribusiness scientists their primary concern is such things as resistance to pests, 
yield per acre. So they uh, actually increase the toxicity of the plant by allowing such things as wheat germagglutinin and phytates, which are pest resistant compounds to increase dramatically, but they're now more toxic to humans. So if anyone wants all that background, that kind of stuff, and yeah. the conversation about the history of through the ages, starting with einkorn, pre-biblical, emmer, the wheat of the Bible, and then traditional strains, and now what's called high-yield semi-dwarf strains of, of wheat. If someone wants to understand that and where this all came from, that's that's the Wheat Belly books. Awesome. Great. Um, Dr. Davis, it's been a pleasure to have you here. I'm, I'm grateful that you, uh, you, you've been able to spearhead this and literally take you know, the, the bull by the horns, create this awareness from a, an inside perspective on healthcare and taking the, giving the power back to the people. I mean, that's really what it really boils down, power back to the people to be able to do something about their health today. And it's easier than what people think. And this is, again, what we, I think, have highlighted here in this conversation. It's not as hard as you might seem and be able to do this. So I acknowledge you for your ability to go against the grain and your your ability to just maximize the opportunities for people to have health from the inside out. So I thank you for that. Thank you for saying so, Steve. And really, and please keep on doing what you're doing. As you point out in the beginning, my colleagues are not doing their job. Yeah, they're not dispensing health. They don't understand health. They understand revenues and pharmaceuticals and procedures. But hell, that's what people need to turn to you, other podcasters, other sources, people who are unafraid of speaking the truth. So I applaud you for doing that. And please, by all means, keep keep doing it. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Uh, New York Times bestselling author of Wheat Belly and Super Gut. He's here in the flesh. Thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, for listening. Please rate the podcast. Keep listening. Stay healthy and well until next time. Thank you for listening.